Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're very glad that you have joined us again as we discuss another another excerpt from Isaiah. As as has happened in a few weeks, we've, we've had to jump forward quite a lot. There's a, there's a good number of chapters that we're missing out just by virtue of trying to keep pace with the, the Seventh-day Adventist Quarterly, uh, which does the same. But we are going to start our discussion with a bit of a preview of uh, a, a recall of some of the ideas we discuss and how they sort of play out in some of the, the chapters we're skipping over. And then we've got a bunch of juicy, interesting ideas to discuss uh, from from much later in Isaiah and uh, looking in Isaiah 37. Uh, my name's Cameron. I'm very glad that you've joined us. Ken can't be with us. He is uh, currently en route, travelling back from New South Wales, and uh, he'll join us again next week. And uh, I'm I'm discombobulated because I always go after Ken. I'm Luke, and I'm recording from Kurumbong. And I'm Lachlan. I'm also from Kurumbong. And just as we're opening, I do have a comment from my wife Clancy about the ambiguity regarding the Hebrew word for hedgehog or owl. Ah, good. Clancy's comment was that that word can't be one of the um, 50 most commonly used Hebrew words in the Old Testament and therefore doesn't feature in the vocab lists that are typically studied at undergraduate level. Uh, so she wasn't able to shed any light on that ambiguity. I see. I see. Uh, well, that's good. That's good to know. Uh, obviously, this that, that part of our discussion was at the cutting edge of, of theological discourse. It was. And if any listeners can shed light on, on the either the physical similarities between a hedgehog and an owl or the linguistic ambiguities in Hebrew of those animals, then we'd be fascinated to resolve that for everyone. Mm, very good. Now, we left off our discussion uh, last week in the teens, in somewhere around chapter 13, 14, I think, uh, of Azar. And we're about to jump up to the late 30s. Uh, there's, there's a lot that's said, and maybe the chapter's that we're missing out contain the most important messages of the book, but we won't know because we're skipping them. So uh, something to come back to. There is one thing, though, that Ken pulled out. We've, we've all pulled out, but he, he made the most recent edition in one of our recent episodes, uh, and that is the thematic repetition of eyes and ears and their function. I mentioned the book of Isaiah. This, this turned up first in our discussion on Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is called and he is told by God that that he, his ministry, will be to make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And uh, that's obviously a bit of a troubling sentiment. If any of our listeners have missed our discussion, look back through the, the feed wherever you uh, find our podcast. And uh, you'll find a discussion of that. I, I can't say that we necessarily solved the problem, but we had a lot of fun talking about the problem. Uh, and we offered, we, we actually split a discussion up over two episodes. Uh, this idea of people's eyes and ears uh, being incapable or insufficient for recognizing truth is picked up in chapter uh, 11. And this was a verse that Ken noticed. Uh, in this, in chapter 11, there is a discussion of the servant of the Lord. And it states here that that he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, which is another sort of uh, featuring of this eyes, ears, and their function metaphor. There's a few verses in the chapters we're going to skip over Locke, could you look at 29 verse 18? Luke, uh, could you look at Isaiah 32 verse 3? Got it. And I will look at Isaiah 35 verse 5. Right. Well, Isaiah 29 verse 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. I am going to uh, ignore your instructions cam and read 32 verses 1 through to 8 because i think the context Wonderful. is great it says 
See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind, and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then, this is verse 3, the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For fools speak folly, their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, and from the thirsty they withhold water. Scoundrels use wicked methods to make up evil schemes, to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. Thank you, Luke. Before we discuss it, I'll read from Isaiah 35 and inspired Luke, by that I'm also going to include a little more context because some of the themes that you talked about reappear in Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Good work managing not to sing that bit, Cam. Yeah, that's that's an excerpt straight from Handel's Messiah. Uh, I'll spare the listeners my rendition of that. Uh, <laughs> For which they can be thankful. Uh, there's a couple of sort of uh, themes running through each of these passages. These these are the positive version of the difficult verse in Isaiah 6, aren't they? Mm. In fact, if you only read Isaiah 6 and never read any of these, it, it would be uh, very difficult. And indeed, we found it very difficult to sort of discuss those verses. But it seems that, that what God describes in Isaiah 6 is not to be a permanent state for his people. They're not going to be forever seeing and not understanding. One of the great features of the time of, of in that day, one of, the, one of the distinguishing things that will happen is a reversal of what's described in Isaiah 6. People will see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And I really like that you've picked these up, Cam, because remember back when we started this season, this quarter of the year, looking at Isaiah, and I, I shared listening to it as an audiobook caused me to catch just a couple of those phrases that repeat. The one that I remember vividly was the in that day. And Mm. it's very obvious that this theme of seeing and hearing and either not understanding or of comprehending is an equally rich and recurring theme through the book of Isaiah. So it is good that we pay attention to these in passing. And Luke, I like the social justice theme in, in the passage. One of the things that people are not seeing is they are not seeing the value in people for what, for what should be valued. So, you know, in that day, fools will no longer be, you know, held in places of high honour. Yes. The suave, sweet talkers who abuse everyone underneath them, but, you know, convince everyone else of their own awesomeness uh, are going to be taken down from the pedestal and, and the people and in the passage I read the feeble hands are going to be strengthened mm. uh, those with fearful hearts be strong do not fear so tell tell me how in anyone who lives in our modern era can't yearn for a ruler who is like a shelter from the wind <laughs> yeah or a stream of water in the desert or a yeah. world where fools are not called noble and scoundrels are not respected yeah, yeah, because indeed. That, it's clearly not describing our world. And lest no. anyone think that this these connections to issues of justice um, are are isolated, here is the verse following the one I read. Um, so this is back in Isaiah twenty nine, verses eighteen and nineteen. The eighteen was the one I read about the deaf shall hear, and the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. Yeah. 
same idea you know we we can pull this out i often think that when christ said to his listeners you diligently search the scriptures but they're the scriptures that tell about me i don't think he was referring to isolated passages of prophecy i think he was talking to sort of all pervasive themes Mm. and when when christ stands up and says the sheep and the goats that there's going to be people who who think they've been doing the right thing going through the motions the religious motions they just haven't helped anyone and when christ describes those people you know not faring so well in the final judgment which was one of the things that upset a lot of his listeners that theme is very much here so one of the one of the hallmarks one of the defining characteristics of the people who do see with their eyes and hear with their ears is the way they treat other people mm. you will know if you are in that you'll know if you if you belong to one of these people with unstopped ears and eyes that see if you are the sort of person who is actually working to help the poor and the needy and those who are fearful i think that's a reasonably good summary of the way this theme keeps showing up in the book of isaiah Mm. I also like the passage in the bit that I read where it says that be strong and do not fear. Your God will come and he will come with vengeance. Hmm. Hmm. Vengeance is an interesting choice of words. Yeah. With divine retribution, he will come to to save you. Ah. Retribution is another cho- interesting choice of words. Yeah. Because what, what <laughs> I, I, I start to get from Isaiah is that there's this real dichotomy to the character of God, who on the one hand is very protective and nurturing and passionate about justice you know this just rulers Mm. and listening to the the cries of the the just cries of the needy you know um and then on the other hand really brutal (laughs) well let's pick that theme up luke we've we've got to um we've got to start now at isaiah 36 and the the lesson pamphlet this week looks at the the story that takes place across Isaiah 36 up to about 39. And a big shift happens in the tone, uh, style, almost the genre of the book of Isaiah here at the start of chapter 36. Because for chapter after chapter, we've been looking at these quite poetic oracles concerning the nations, judgments concerning the nations, uh, prophetic messages through the mouth of of Isaiah. And then in chapter 36, suddenly what we get is a gear shift back into narrative in the the form of history. Um, So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So that's the start of Isaiah 36. And the story that plays out here is really following on from the history that we encountered early in the book of Isaiah. Remember early, there was a king called Ahaz, and he turns out to be Hezekiah's father. And Ahaz was very concerned about a couple of nations that seemed to be threatening, and so made a deal with Assyria that that he felt was leading to the defense of Judah, but turned out to be a little bit of a burden to Judah because of the required financial obligation involved in this deal was a protection racket. What we get now in, in these chapters, uh, 36, 37, 38, we get Hezekiah leading a revolt, a rebellion against paying this his dues to the king of Assyria. There's a siege. Uh, there's all sorts of things. And Luke, you described the, the this almost two different sides of the character of God in these stories. Um, they, they come to the fore in a very vivid and prominent way in this in this account. In fact, look, the verses I, I read are a fairly perfect summary. God's message and his action is pretty much, don't be afraid, your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. <laughs> yes, that's, that's if you were to put all of these four chapters into what is almost haiku-like condensation, mm. compression, that's what you'd end up with, Cam. Because what happens is, and uh, listeners, you're probably familiar with this story, and it's repeated almost word for word. Some of these passages appear in Second Kings, around about chapter 20. 
Uh, this is where the army of the Assyrians, after a bunch of challenges and threats and taunts and so on, the army of the Assyrians come and lay siege to Jerusalem. And the, their siege is unsuccessful in the end because the miraculous hand of the Lord moves through the camp one evening. And uh, behold, when the Assyrian army woke the next morning, they were all dead corpses. Mm. Thousands. It's 185,000, isn't it? Like? I think it is. 185,000. I don't have the the verse reference for that right in front of me. but I reckon I could find it. But before we do, like I've, I was just reading through one of these passages. And when uh, the Assyrians send a message, a threatening message, and it's read out to the people and they insist on reading it out in a language that everyone can hear so that... Uh, you know, Hezekiah's put on a bad spot because he not only receives the threat, but all his people receive and understand the threat. Not and just the threat, but also the conditions, the the offered opportunity to, yeah. to uh, you know, it, it, an opportunity is offered to sort of submit or, re, re, you know, yeah. um, give up the revolt. Um, and it, it's made specifically to the people so that they know that if Hezekiah refuses it, and Assyria attacks and kills them all, and does terrible things to them in to their city. It was Hezekiah's fault, <laughs> and so and it's it's very of Ass- cunning manipulation. Yeah. It's very it's very cunning. The king of Assyria is is troubled by rumors of war on his other frontiers, and he rushes off to defend those. And he he says to Hezekiah, "Don't worry, I'm coming back. And just remember, while I'm gone, all the things I've done to all these other kings." And Hezekiah, in chapter 37, verse 14, received the letter from the messages uh, from the Assyrians, and he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, almighty God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord. (laughs) Open your eyes and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib. He sent this insult, and everything he has said is true. He, he is powerful, and he has done these things to other nations and to their gods. Deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are our God. Hezekiah seems to suggest that maybe God's eyes need to be unstopped, or his mm. ears need to be unstopped and his eyes need to be opened. That's really interesting. And there's one implicit one in there in the, in the earlier bit of this story that you just pointed out. The message from the king of Assyria... In, in Isaiah 36, verse 13, Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king of Assyria. In other words, the message from the king of Assyria is spoken in such a way that the, is, that the people of Judah have ears and do hear. Yeah. 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 Very cool. That's really interesting. This theme just keeps coming up. Um, so then what was your... What was your f- Two verse summary cam. There was the the hand of the Lord shows up with vengeance. Let's let's say the hundred and eighty five. In Isaiah thirty five it says, "Don't be afraid, because the Lord will will turn up with vengeance and deliver you." Yes, well that that let's say with that one hundred and eighty five thousand soldiers in the Assyrian army killed in one night. Let's say that's the vengeance. Um, I think that's fair enough. And then and then there was the the deliverance. And there's two different deliverances that happen here. And in Isaiah 37 and 38, there seems almost to be a bit of a sequence um, inversion happening because Isaiah 38 uh, anticipates the um, deliverance from the king of Assyria, which seems to have already happened in Isaiah 37. So there's a little bit of of a jumble of some of the sequence there. But in Isaiah 38, there's a personal deliverance for Hezekiah because he becomes sick. He's at the point of death, and Isaiah turns up with pretty bad news. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. And Hezekiah thinks that it's probably worth at least questioning God on this. So he says, well, please, God, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness. And then the Lord came to Isaiah, go to Hezekiah. (laughs) Sorry, Luck. In Isaiah 38, verse 14, he's describing his illness. He says, my eyes grew weak. (laughs) <laughs> yes this whole book's obsessed with eyes it's it's the book written by optometrists i think um, 
So, but the there's an interesting detail here, a, a bit earlier than that in Isaiah 38. So, Hezekiah basically asked God to remember his faithfulness. And Isaiah comes back with a message from God saying, actually, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. There you are, Cam. I've heard and I've seen. That's Isaiah 38, verse 5. And God says, I will deliver you out of the hand of the king of Assyria. But then in verse 7 of Isaiah 38, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the ten steps by which it had declined. And um, there's a couple of details there that tie us again, link us back to where we have already trod in the book of Isaiah. Because earlier on, um, in, because earlier on in Isaiah 7, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This, this sign of the sun is on the dial of Ahaz. And in chapter 7, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And remember, we did discuss that verse in Isaiah 7. Uh, there seems to be a bit of false piety. There seems to be a bit of fear. There's a number of interesting and rather complex motivations behind Ahaz's response. But in Isaiah 38... God gives Hezekiah a sign which, so to speak, is as high as heaven. It's the sign encoded in the motion of the sun itself. And it's on Ahaz's dial. I think that there's a lot of connection there. There is, except Ahaz is told to ask for a sign, and he he's, doesn't want to. Um, uh, Hezekiah doesn't really ask. He asks to be healed, but he doesn't specifically ask for a sign. But it's given to him anyway. Is it? Is it given to, I mean, is, is it, I don't know, this is irrelevant, but is it, is it Ahaz's sign that God is now giving to his son, the sign that Ahaz was supposed to ask for? Hmm. Because Ahaz was also supposed to not go to the Assyrians for help because it was a, it was a, you know, it was a trap. Um, he was supposed to ask God for deliverance and he didn't. And now his son is coming in a very similar situation where the threat is again from the Assyrians. Um, and he's being given a sign about the, I, I, the, I, I suppose the, 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 the interesting hypothetical is if, if Ahaz had done what was, he was instructed to and asked God for a sign, would God have killed the 185,000 Assyrians then <laughs> <laughs> rather than now? I mean, it's, it's the, the fact that it's, it's, history repeating itself um but but also going a different way because because you know hezekiah is, is it hezekiah i mm. hope i'm remembering the name right yeah history is is repeating itself but it's also playing out in a completely different way because hezekiah has shown more courage and piety than his father did yeah but it, it's all really riding on the character and the a single choice by these individuals and the fate of, of hundreds of thousands is in the balance. Now, I think that we should dig into this slightly deeper. Luke, this is, this is touching again on that idea you mentioned a few minutes ago about almost there being two different sides to God, the character of God in these, in these passages. So God is here delivering Hezekiah in a miraculous way and backing up his miraculous healing with an uh, arguably even more miraculous sign just to just to confirm that he is going to follow through with the healing. Um, in, it's a little bit extravagant in a sense because the healing itself is is already evidence enough that God is doing what he said he would do. So there's a sort of extravagance or an opulence here in God expressing his power in a miraculous way. And that's a beautiful, it's a sign uh, confirming a promise of blessing. It's really uplifting and very exciting. But God also flexes his power here in this story through the wiping out of the army of the Assyrians who are laying siege to Jerusalem. And I suspect that all of us feel that's a slightly more troubling instance of God's power at no, display. But we're not meant to be troubled, Locke. We're meant to be strong and do not fear. 
because your God will come, he will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. That's the passage from Isaiah 35. The fact that he comes in willing and able to wipe out 185,000 people is apparently to make us feel very calm and peaceful. Okay. Well, maybe you're in a good position then, Cam, to answer a question posed by the Sabbath School pamphlet this week, which I have to admit, I'm not sure I have a good answer to. So I, I mean, I'm going to appreciate the confidence with which you can answer this. And the, the yeah. lesson posed this question, <laughs> what do you say to someone who, not yet believing in the Bible or the God of the Bible, asks, was it fair that these Assyrian soldiers, who just happened to be born where they were, should die like this? How do you personally understand the Lord's actions here? Um, well, uh, this is not what I personally understand. But if I'm to take the passage I've read from Isaiah 35 at face value, the explanation is that sometimes God is feeling vengeful. Okay. And that's okay? Well, that's exactly why I'm not afraid, Luke. It's because I'm strong and I do not fear. Uh, Look, uh, it's obviously just a question that just didn't occur to the people reading it. Mm. I mean, this this is one deliverance. It's less remarkable in many ways than the Red Sea swamping Pharaoh. It's less extreme, Locke, than the firstborn being killed. That is the story. The Exodus story is the defining story for the nation of Israel as a nation. Uh, so, so the people to whom this message is being given, who are living through the events, I don't think they saw any problem at all with God killing 185,000 um, they they can the writers the audience the the participants you know those people whom the story is about may not have seen any problem with it uh, but that doesn't necessarily make life any easier for us no it doesn't but it does uh, suggest what am I trying to say uh, if uh, if if I was trying to go through my great-grandmother's recipe book. And uh, she had something down there uh, listed as being a great, I don't know, cure for the common cold. Apparently, when Ellen White used to feel ill with bad throats and nose, she would rush off and get herself some shellfish, some mussels, so I've heard. Uh and that's not something we'd be very comfortable with today. But if, if you're looking at someone from the distant past and you're, you're looking to them for dietary advice, uh, the more you found out about differences between what food was available to your ancestors, what cooking methods were available, what knowledge there was of nutrition contemporary at the time, the more differences you found in the, between yourself and your ancestors, uh, the less the less weight you would you would put on what your ancestors had written. So I guess what I'm saying is uh, we don't have to accept as truth everything that the people who wrote the Bible thought was true. Particularly, now, if, particularly if humanity is in a process of having our eyes opened and our ears unstopped with this, this theme of, of God always wanting to share new truth. If... if if indeed new truth has been, if our eyes have been opened to, for instance, certain injustices or... So, then, in, in relation then to this story, Cam... Yeah. You are saying that it is it was not a good thing that God killed these 185,000 Assyrians. It would have been better had he got rid of them some other way. Perhaps if he if just teleported them back to Assyria. Well, that may not unharmed. have removed the political threat. So you then have to ask the question, you know, was there actually a, a different way of resolving this, this uh, strife? Uh, uh, magically remove all of their armour and weapons. <laughs> yeah, you could, could dress them in pink nighties. There are, Revert um, them all to there are some biblical examples of alternatives. You can strike them blind, lead them into the, into the headquarters of Jerusalem and then give them a feast and send them home. Um, uh, that's that's modelled elsewhere in the Old Testament, so there are there are some I mean, alternatives. If if yeah. Lachlan and I can come up with alternative solutions, now granted, <laughs> we are not possessing of nearly the full context 
Well, one of the problems is that maybe it would just be difficult to provide the feast to 185,000 people. Yeah, that's right. That's right. When when the I'm grocery sure- stores get unstocked, it's just much easier to massacre your guests. It is much easier to massacre. So, well, um, okay. But, I mean, one that, of the problems is... That puts a is, spin on these toilet paper shortages. <laughs> <laughs> it does. But no, there is a serious point in this, is that the the nation of uh, Assyria was not an innocent bystander. They no. Were, they were very active aggressors. So, and, and, and if God allows a freedom to people, I'm sure there are many soldiers in that army who, who are not particularly bad people, but they were belonged and they were contributing to and they were part of. They were one of the cogs in the wheel or the bee in the hive or the neuron in the collective brain, as it were, of, of the Assyrian army. They, they were part of the machinery. And if God mm. allows freedom to people, and the Assyrians were obviously, when, when it gets to the point where you're skinning people alive and doing all sorts of other gruesome things and you're running around trying to subdue every neighbouring power and, uh, and not just subdue them but destroy their culture... Uh, it may be that there is just a point where God says, "Well, actually, there's um, this is a difficult situation to resolve." So I think you've you've made a really good point, Cam, and it's the first, uh, it's the first response to this question from the lesson because the lesson asked, "Was it fair that these Assyrian soldiers who just happened to be born where they were?" And it implies that's the only reason why they have died in this story. But we know from these verses that the Assyrian army has been on a rampage and and all subduing cities left, right and centre. And it is very clear from context that they haven't really been uplifting the plight of the oppressed. And so it's a bit hard to assume that they're all just innocent. So that's a fair point. And Luke, it seems like you might have a comment. <laughs> but that doesn't solve the problem. It just reverses it. So, let me walk you through the train of thought that I perceive here. And if I'm wrong, correct me. Uh, Just jump in at any point. But you are saying then that essentially, you know, drawing a little bit from the New Testament here for a second, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, it is not unjust for God to kill essentially anybody, you know, because... God has the right to do that, being righteous, being without sin, as opposed to us. If I go and kill somebody else and say they deserved it, rightly, under under the laws of our lands, that's not okay. I'm not permitted to be a judge um, in a secular or a spiritual sense as a Christian. But if God does it, who are we to say that it is not a righteous action? But the question therefore becomes... Why doesn't God kill more people? Hmm. Yeah. In why other words, why if, do the Israelites here deserve what, to be what? saved? Because they are also evil. So how yeah. it, it seems like he's taking sides. Well, they've been oppressing people left, right and centre. And, and we can think of many other people in history who are, who are being oppressed and, and who God didn't step in. So the problem is not... I hear you say, Luke, that God killed 185,000 people. It's that he has only killed 185,000 people. Think of all the es- other people. Essentially, in- yes. Uh, oh, if, well, if we follow that train of thought. And that is a tad troubling <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> um, but it is, it is maybe uh, the right attitude with which to approach um, the New Testament, for example. Yeah. It's certainly the case that if we borrow again from this passage in Isaiah 35, uh, when it says, do not fear, your God will come, he'll come with vengeance and divine retribution. It's not simply that God is cross or upset with them. It is, this is repayment for specific things they've done. It's a revenge of sorts. Mm. But but then the, the question is still, why is this not done more often? I mean... There are there are terrible injustices perpetrated daily on on relative innocence around the world and have been for all of human history. Now, where is the divine retribution in all the other cases? Some of which happened today. Yeah, and one of which is poverty. It's not it's not like a specific military. It's not like um, it's not like a the Holocaust is a very localized specific 
one group versus one group of people oppression. But but anyone who takes part in a society that allows for or is not putting as much energy into as it could, um, you know, resolving issues of poverty, we are, we are all oppressors uh, by belonging to those society. And this is another general theme in Isaiah. God's always saying, "Stick up for the poor, stick up for the needy." Why are there poor and needy? If it is true that God is the God of the orphan and the widow, why are they an orphan and a, and a widow? Why, why hasn't God yeah. solved that problem? I mean, coming coming back to this question, Lachlan, the, the the Sabbath school lesson poses: What would you tell these people? I would tell them an honest answer and say. I don't know why it's okay. I don't know if it's mm. yeah, well, fair. I don't know why he did it here and not elsewhere, um, and why he did it in this way and not another way. I don't know. I, it's, it's one of the mysteries. I like that answer. And, and to me, that would be my second um, major critique, I suppose. The first critique was that the question almost almost implied that these Assyrian soldiers were innocent. And we've questioned their innocence, but we've then, in doing so, we've realized that we're forced to question our own. And I think that's a valid challenge to us. The second critique of this question, though, is simply that it opens, what do you say to someone who, not yet believing in the Bible or the God of the Bible, wonders whether it was fair that the Assyrians were killed? Well, that implies that if you are already a Bible-believing follower of God, you'd are not asking the question, but but I, I think, in all honesty, you still are asking the question, often. And if it's not this passage, it's any one of a number of other passages that, you know, even in the last few weeks, we've already dealt with a couple. Um, and, and, and I suppose you could say, and I suspect that the author of the question may have been thinking this, if you're a believer in the Bible, you say, well, it must be righteous because God did it. But the, to that, I would then say... Well, what if what if Abraham had taken that attitude? Mm. Um, you know, what what if? And, and we we talked previously about well, Noah kind of did take that attitude. And what if he wasn't supposed to? What if he was supposed to question? You know, there are bits in there. There are, there are stories in the Bible and lessons to be learned in the Bible. We were talking about it just now. Hezekiah is dying, and he goes and and just begs God for more time and to be healed. You know. Surely if you just accepting it's happening because God wills it and God is righteous, therefore it must be right, you're not going to him and asking for things to be changed. So how do we reconcile that attitude with the many examples in the Bible we see where people ask for something in prayer? And, I mean, as a result of Hezekiah's prayer, Jerusalem is saved, 185,000 no. people are killed, he gets 15 extra years of life, and the sun moves backwards in the sky. No, but Luke, it's more complicated than that because Jerusalem is not saved because of... Well, temporarily. It, it's saved from the Assyrians, but the story makes it very clear that this miracle and its aftermath is partly responsible for all the interest that the Babylonians took in Israel. <laughs> Because mm. they come to see Hezekiah and he shows off all his cash and bling and they think that they wouldn't mind getting their hands on that, which, of course, they do within a few decades. So, And and Hezekiah's son that's born to him in these 15 years is one of the nation's worst kings. So there is in this story almost, almost it's not explicit, but almost an implicit judgment on Hezekiah that perhaps things would have turned out better for his country if he had just accepted his illness. Well, that is, is a, that is a sobering thought because then essentially it means he got those 185,000 Assyrians killed to make things worse for Jerusalem. Well, no, because... <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I mean, I do, it's, there's it's the difficult, problem. isn't it? But remember, in the context of the book of Isaiah, the um, captivity in Babylon and the exile... Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it feels to me from some of the oracles concerning the nations, mm. uh, in the context of the book of Isaiah, that exile for God's people is a didactic experience. It's it's intended as a, a learning and growth experience. Um, and and I, It's a little though, isn't it? Like the Rowan Atkinson that, that's sketch. That's Isaiah 1. The Rowan Atkinson sketch where he plays a school headmaster and he's... Uh, 
calling a father in and he's saying, you know, I've had to discipline your child and he's done it again and again and again. And, you know, this last time he was caught returning a book one week late to the library and he won't do that again. And uh, the father says, well, why not? He says, well, uh, you know, I've killed him, uh, beaten him to death. And if that doesn't teach him... uh, (laughs) Dear, dear. So the didactic method... (laughs) See, this is the trouble. The didactic method, I think is demonstrably fairly successful for, for the nation as a whole. Now, I'm not sure if we've been careful enough distinguish, distinguishing between Israel and Judah. I know I've been referring to them as Israel. But Hezekiah is... Is he not the king of Judah? Yeah, it's the king yes. of Judah. Yeah. But for the nation of Judah, the uh, the Babylonian captivity experience is, is demonstrably uh, quite successful as a didactic exercise. But for the individuals living through that time, it would have been horrific. Yeah. And this is the same problem that we've raised last week and in other weeks. The problem is that what Isaiah is describing, and it's the same more or less in the book of Daniel, that what it's describing is God's interaction with cultures, not, and I say cultures rather than nations, uh, it's Mm. not just the nation, it's just the group of people, but the culture is the attitudes that emerge. The culture is the emergent phenomena that comes out of a nation and you know one where the poor are oppressed is an example that Isaiah comes back to again and again that this is this is a a fault it's not a fault of specific people in it it is a fault of the culture as a whole and the culture as a whole is going to be punished and this seems to be what happening with the Assyrians as a as a group they are being fairly brutal we don't know if everyone in the 185,000 soldiers was complicit or willingly complicit. Uh, for all we know, they were conscripted. But but it, it is undeniable that at the meta level, at the group level, they've been doing some awful stuff. And the question which we've not been able to resolve is, if God is, if groups of people can make decisions, which are not so much decisions of the individuals within a group, in a real sense they are decisions of the group, and if, if a group of people commit some atrocity and God wishes to respond, how is he to act if he cannot respond in a way to teach the group without perhaps injustice happening at a small individual level? I mean, what, what's, what's what God meant to do? say about humanity as a whole if this is the only way to teach us? Well, I am a teacher, Luke, and I've never tried this approach in the classroom, but your comment <laughs> inspires me <laughs> to enact a bit more vengeance. Um, no, it's a good question. I, I, the Bible seems to suggest the Bible seems to suggest that humanity is not actually very good at learning things. Well, that uh, is certainly a position that, that could find supporting evidence um, elsewhere as well. I, what I wonder about with... All, I, I don't disagree with anything you said, Cam. Um, it, what I really wonder about, though, is what is the standard? You know? And, and it, I know it's something that I'm not going to get an answer to. Uh, uh, not in this life anyway. But it's just... Okay, why, what was the decision-making process here? Why in these specific circumstances it's 185,000 killed? Uh, and why in another circumstance was it, you know blind them and then trick them and then put fear into them and then let them go i just you know why in another circumstance was it flood the entire world and kill everyone and why was it with, one with the case of other nations that the, i'm sure that those that army of one hundred and eighty-five thousand had between them killed many times that number of other nations yeah. and yeah, where why, God had so not why wasn't it done to them earlier before they did all the rest of that stuff um, and then I suppose the fundamental overarching question is why did all of this happen before the one who preached love and loving your neighbor and loving your enemy and salvation and universal compassion came? Why did all this happen before then? Mm. Well, Christ is not 100% nice to everyone he meets. When he says to people, look, it would be better for you if you were tied to a rock and thrown into the ocean. Uh, that, that's... Well, at least he's but saying I, it and not just killing them. He's, at least he's not tying he them to a rock. Which he had the power to do. 
So yeah, no, your um, point still stands. There is it one does. answer, Luke. There is one answer that is is almost certainly overreaching the textual material we have, but it is at least an attempt that could be made to make sense of this. Is that's the reason why Jesus had to come? I mean, what if this wasn't the direct miraculous hand of God killing 185,000 people? They're soldiers in a camp sieging a city. We know how quickly various sicknesses and disease can spread COVID-19, when you're in close quarters. Maybe this, was, maybe this was the COVID of the era, a sickness that broke out, a pandemic within the Assyrian camp. And the perception within Jerusalem was miraculous act of God. And over time, this picture builds up more and more. And God says to himself, look, I just, I am being misrepresented. It's, it's a high priority for me to just get down there as a human and clarify a few things. And so we wouldn't be too surprised to find that Jesus is proclaiming a slightly augmented, slightly updated, slightly corrective picture of his actions. Now, I, I led that with a caveat, and I actually do think it's not being quite true to the intent here in the book of Isaiah, because in Isaiah here, it very clearly is celebrating this, this um, you know, destruction of the Assyrian army as being the act of God. God's hand moved through the camp that night. And I think we do need to grapple with that a little bit. And we don't have enough time to continue grappling with it. But one not, idea that well, has, occurred, has occurred to me is that throughout the book of Isaiah, we, we are experiencing two things. You have described it as being God's interaction with cultures or judgments on cultures. And yet interspersed in throughout this is a very heavy emphasis on our personal responsibilities to the poor and to the oppressed and to the orphan. And I wonder whether we can at least get a little bit of resolution here by saying, if it is true in the book of Isaiah and in some of this Old Testament history that on occasion God does act fairly fairly large scale with vengeance, perhaps, or fairly heavy-handed in his didactic dealings with his people, it is not the example which we are called to follow. That is the purview of God and God alone. Mm. Our responsibility are to be the people who are meek, who exalt the Holy One of Israel by standing up for the poor. Um, we are called not to be the people who despise his word and trust in oppression and perverseness, as, it, as is described by, of a rebellious people in Isaiah 30. I suspect that that is helpful. For me, it's personally helpful. What do I take away from this at the end of the day? There are questions that linger, but my direct, tangible daily obligation is clear to stand up mm -hmm. for those who don't have a voice. Well, look, since you've brought it back to social justice for me, and I do appreciate it, um, I reckon it's worth having a very, very brief look at Isaiah 39, because Isaiah 39 is very short. It concludes this passage of narrative in the middle of these um, sort of prophecies and, and uh, psalms uh, that, that make up the rest of this part of Isaiah. And this is the last narrative in the whole book. I, I was just checking through quickly, and from here on out it goes back to sort of standalone you know uh songs um so this is the last little bit of story and it's it's what you already referred to cam about um well the the babylonians got very interested in you know how israel had seen off the might of assyria and you know the the these magical powers of this king who'd recovered um and they came and they they what they saw was all the wealth of the king, Hezekiah. Um, and the implication is interesting, that Hezekiah might have done very well for himself off the back of this miraculous recovery and defeat of the Assyrians. And he's built up a bit of wealth that he probably should have been spreading to his people. And what's mm. the result of that? The Babylonians look at him and go, that seems like it would be better if it was ours. So there's a, there's an imp the implication there being that maybe after you know his faithfulness and 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 have God having got him through this crisis Hezekiah like you said earlier Lachlan maybe maybe went a bit off mm. off the, off the path 
And actually, you know, the implication is that what happened with the Babylonians might have been avoidable if he had been doing exactly what you said, being meeker, He's obviously a bit being too proud more interested of his personal wealth. social justice. Yeah, it's all it's all the king's mm. storehouses. Mm. And Isaiah 40 is going to get a huge amount of attention, I'm sure, because it's one of our favourite passages. This leads on after the passage of yours. But it does have some uh, bits in it that relate to our discussion on God's sort of heavy-handed um, approach to managing what's happening on earth. Uh, and so I'm gonna, Isaiah 40 is the passage uh, that uh, Christ quotes about himself. It's very obviously messianic. But let me pick out some sections which are almost certainly not going to be focused on by the lesson. Uh, and we probably may not have time to come back to ourselves. In Isaiah 40... Uh, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, tell her that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There seems to be in that a suggestion that God sees what he has himself done as being a little heavy-handed. That Jerusalem has received double for all her sins. Uh, Then there's the passage about a voice is calling out in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And... After that, it says, all men are like grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall. Uh, It talks about a gentle shepherd. And then who is this gentle shepherd? And it launches into this image about how great and big God is. And one of the signs of this is in Isaiah 40, verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. The 185,000, they're regarded as the dust on the scales. That's my paraphrase. Uh, They're like fine dust. You know, all of Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. You know, that sentiment of the nations being almost uh, insignificant to God, in as much as they they have no, they don't cause him angst. He's able to manage that. They're, they're very small. Uh, seems to be what happened with the Assyrians. God was able fairly effortlessly to, to sort that out. In the manner he did it is still poses many questions. But um, even in the next chapter, where we're learning about the gentle shepherd who's going to pick up the lambs, in the next breath it's talking about the nations being, you know, fine dust, uh, and uh, that chapter also concludes with God uh, picking a side, and who who is the people who is the people that God is on their side, and it is the weary. Mm-hmm. So Isaiah 40 ends with, with those who are weary, God will give power to the ah, weak. Wow, that's very good news for all parents of small children. Absolutely. Uh, but God God seems to be backing out up the powerless. And that is certainly something that is at play even in those difficult chapters that we looked at because the nation of Judah is a pretty small player compared with Assyria. Mm. And what we're seeing albeit in a very large, gruesome, dramatic way, is this theme of God standing up for the people who cannot stand up for themselves. And, of course, the constant admonition in the book of Isaiah is that we should be doing the same. Mm. Mm. Good place to end. Right, well, before we open up any more cans of worms, we need to, we need to end this week's discussion. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will be able to immediately resolve all our problems for us. And when they do that, they can, or even if they, they, they haven't resolved it, I'm, I'm being a little facetious. But please, if you have any thoughts or comments, send email us at uh, sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments. Please join us next week as we continue to look through the book of Isaiah.